Well, I just wanted to start off again by saying it is so good to see all of you here this morning. I love to see your faces, so I'm actually watching. So if you could actually smile, that would be great. I don't want to look out and see a bunch of frowns, right? We're here to celebrate today. I also want to let you know that the message that I have for you this morning is not your typical Easter message. Is that okay? You see, because I realize, you know, for many of us, maybe we only come into this place on Easter. And so there's no shame in that, but odds are, if that's you, you got the Easter message down. (laughs) Not only that, for many of us, man, we've been in church maybe 20, 30, 40 years or more, right? And so you probably came in this morning with a preconceived idea of what I was going to preach on. So I just want to shake it up. I want to shift it. And I want to challenge you to lean into really what it is that God has for you this morning. Is that good? All right. Well, I don't want to go, like I said, to just talking about Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. I actually want to go to the beginning of Jesus's ministry because he says something that's so profound, and it's just as profound, I believe, to the fact that Jesus got up out of the grave. You see, Jesus was calling disciples, people to follow him, and the first place he led his disciples to was the Jordan River. He actually went to visit his cousin John the Baptist, and he was living up to his name, baptizing people. But Jesus steps on the scene at the Jordan River. John, his cousin, looks up, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, right up front, that is some good news, that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. That's incredible news. But Jesus, he goes down. He gets baptized by John. He comes up out of the water. He hears a voice from his father, and his father cries out, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Man, I love that God the Father said that because before Jesus did anything, before he walked on water, before he turned water to wine, before he opened blind eyes, before he opened deaf ears, before he even preached a sermon Here's his father affirming him in his identity, saying, this is a son in whom I'm well pleased. This morning, Easter 2019, would you allow the father to speak that over your life, that you are a son, that you are a daughter in whom he is well pleased? Well, Jesus, after hearing this, he actually goes into the wilderness, and he fasts, and he prays, and the enemy actually comes and tempts him in the very thing that he was just affirmed in. You see, the enemy came and says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Well, wait a minute. He just heard that he was a son. You see, that's exactly where the enemy will try to trip us up into deceiving us to think that we're not a son when God calls us a son. But Jesus, he overcomes that temptation. He steps back in to Galilee, and this is what he does, and it's so profound. It's found in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, he really came to unleash the new on the world, and this is how he did it. He actually says this, verse 14 of Mark chapter 1, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Everybody say good news. You see, we live in a world that focuses mostly on bad news, but Jesus right up front of his ministry wants to focus on the good news. But what is this good news? You see, for many of us, especially, right, if you've been raised in church or you've been around long enough, this good news or the gospel, we immediately hear that and we relate that to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Well, that's the good news. That's the gospel. 
But that's Mark 15. Here Jesus is, Mark 1, going around proclaiming the good news. So it can't be something that hadn't happened yet. So it has to be something else. And we hear what this good news is in the very next verse, verse 15. It says this, that the time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom, have, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. This is the good news that Jesus was proclaiming. This is what he came to establish. This is what he came to initiate, the establishment of his kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is near, meaning it's at hand, meaning it's right in front of you. It's not in some distant future, but the kingdom is here. And I know this, Jesus knows this, because he's the king and the king is here. You see, he came to establish his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes on to say this, repent and believe the good news. So the kingdom being established is good news, but there's a barrier that's keeping people from believing it. That's why Jesus had to come and say, repent. You see, for many of us, you hear that word repent, or you hear a word repentance, and immediately you begin to think of, well, okay, I think I know what that is. That is just turning from your sin and turning to God. Where did we get this idea? Because that's not really what Jesus means here when he says repentance. You see, we get this idea because in the 4th or 5th century, this dude named Augustine steps on the scene and he really begins to preach and teach uh, a message that's very sin-focused. So if you preach about sin, people are going to be focusing on sin. They're going to be actively engaged in sin even more. The people became very sin-conscious, and these are believers. They began running to the church and asking the priest, what must we do to get right with God? Now, instead of the church telling them, well, you already are right with God in Jesus. You already are forgiven in Christ. What the church began to say is, well, you have to offer penance. So they would begin to do things and buy indulgences and come and offer penance to replace or to try to cover their sin, even though their sins were already covered by the blood of Christ. And the thing is, though, this penance didn't lead to any kind of heart transformation. And so what they would do is they would still be involved in the same old stuff over and over and over again. They would continue to run back to the church, and the church would just say, well, you have to offer penance again. Hence the word repentance, which sounds a lot like repentance, but it's not the same thing. You see, when Jesus says repent and believe the good news, this word repent is two Greek words put together, and it very literally means a change of mind, or it means to look again. Hence the title of the series that we're going through this Easter season, Look Again. You see, Jesus was saying, look at what system you are operating in again. Look again at what it is that now I am coming to do because I'm telling you it's something completely brand new. It doesn't look anything like the old way. You see, for 1,500 years, people thought that they could observe the Mosaic law, and if they observed it perfectly, they could somehow get right with God. But James tells us that if you mess up in just one of those things, which there are 613 commands, if you didn't know, if you messed up in one of those things, then you have broken them all. So there's no way to get right based on some religious checklist. That's why Jesus had to come, and he had to institute his kingdom, and now it's not a kingdom based on a king telling his servants what to do, it's a kingdom based on a king coming because he wants relationship with his kids. 
Man, this is the good news of the gospel. Man, this is such good news. Matter of fact, Jesus goes on, right, while he's with his disciples, and he begins to share many things about the kingdom. But Jesus only uses metaphors. Have you noticed that? Looking through the different gospels and the different stories and the parables, he only uses metaphors to describe the kingdom. He says things like, well, the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in a, in a field and he went and sold everything he had and came back and bought that field. He goes on to say the kingdom of God is like a seed, the smallest of seeds, a mustard seed, and it grows up and it begins to overtake everything around it. The kingdom of God is like a woman who takes a little bit of yeast and puts it into a 60-pound, you know, uh, clump of dough or, or a flour. The kingdom is like this, is like that. But Jesus actually never comes out and says, this is exactly what the kingdom is. We don't get that till this dude Paul steps on the scene and he begins to write to different churches that he's established. And he wrote to a church in Rome that was kind of um, going back to some legalistic ways of thinking, thinking that it had to be a checklist or following rules and regulations to get right with God. So Paul writes them a letter and he begins to correct some of this thinking. And he says this in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, right? Not rules, regulations, not law following. He says, but the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, Everybody say righteousness. Righteousness. It's righteousness, peace. Everybody say peace. And joy in the Holy Spirit. Everybody say joy. 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 It's righteousness, peace, and joy. The last couple of weeks, we've unpacked those first two things of what the kingdom actually is. We've talked about our righteousness, how we, and righteousness is just a word that means in right standing with God, that now we're in right relationship with him. And Jesus, what he did on the cross Right, He took upon the sin of the world. Right, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So right now in this moment, those of us who believe in Jesus, we are as righteous as we will ever be. We cannot get more righteous than we are right now. Because it's not our righteousness. It's his. And then last week, Pastor Corey, he had a phenomenal message on the peace that we have. He talked about how this peace isn't just some principle, but peace is a person. His name is Jesus. He lives in us. And because Jesus lives in us and he is the prince of peace, we have access to peace at any moment, regardless of the chaos, regardless of the situation or the circumstance we find ourselves in. If we have the right perspective, we can choose to have peace in that circumstance. So righteousness Peace and a natural byproduct of knowing that you're righteous and understanding that you have peace at all times is that we should have just this life that is full of joy. Right? Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet. But herein lies the problem. Many people who I know love Jesus dearly aren't walking around expressing very much joy. Oh, we can come in on an Easter Sunday and we can put on a smile and we can shout hallelujah and we can lift up, you know, the name of Jesus. But we know what's going on in our life. And sometimes we come in here and we think it's like, man, I got to fake it till I make it. I got to fake it till I get over this thing. I got to fake it till I make it through this thing. But no, Jesus wants to meet you right in the middle of that thing because he wants you to rely on his strength, not yours. And when you get a perspective to know that you also have joy with you at all times, it can lead you to a place where you actually can't express 
express or can't contain the joy that you have anymore because it's not a joy based on your circumstances. It's a joy based on Christ and what he has done on our behalf. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it then we have to ask the question, right? Why is it that we who love Jesus and follow after Jesus, what is in our life that is hindering us from experiencing joy? Or why are we in this place walking around with our head down so often that we're not expressing joy to those around us? Well, I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. The first reason, and if you're taking notes, you can write this stuff down, but the first reason is because of unmet expectation. As a matter of fact, I can probably trace back every single one of your disappointments to some unmet expectation. You see, life has a way of killing dreams, doesn't it? You set out with hopes, with goals, with things that you want to accomplish or things that you want to do, and life happens. Sometimes situations happen, and it's never what you would have ever dreamed of, but you're going through it anyway. Unmet expectation. It could be in, in marriage. It could be in relationships. It could be at the workplace. could be, you know, in your career. It could be with your kids. Chances are many of us have went through things, man, that have kept us from really experiencing the joy that Jesus wants us to have living life in this kingdom. You know, Jesus even said, in this world, you will have trouble. That doesn't sound great to hear on Easter morning, but that's actually 2,000 years ago where Easter morning began. It began with an empty tomb and Mary crying and weeping. Matter of fact, if we place ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, right, they actually had a time where they had unmet expectation, and it led them right to a place where they weren't really expressing joy either. Matter of fact, the saddest verse in the entire Bible, Mark 14, 50. It says that when Jesus was arrest, arrested, Mark 14, 50, it says, they all deserted him and fled. Who's the all? All the disciples, all the women, all the people following after Jesus. It says they all fled. Every single one of them deserted Jesus. Why? Because, because of an unmet expectation. You see, they had heard that Jesus came to establish the kingdom. They believed him to be the king, but they thought his kingdom was going to be like all the other kingdoms in the world at that time. You see, they believed that Jesus was going to raise up an army, that they were going to fight violently and with swords against the Roman Empire to push them out of their land. And now when Jesus gets arrested, they see the writing on the wall, and they're like, huh, I don't think Jesus is going to do what I think he should do or I thought he was going to, so I guess that's that. And it says they all deserted. As a matter of fact, at the cross, only one disciple is there. Peter, Andrew, the other guys, they go back fishing. They go back to their own way of life thinking, well, this is over. He came to establish the kingdom, but that was short-lived. You see, they thought they were going to take it by force. Matter of fact, I know this because when you look at two of the miracles Jesus performs in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, it says that the men were counted, right? That's how we know there were 5,000 and 4,000 because those were the men that were counted. And we hear, you know, teachings on this and we hear that, well, the men were counted because... 
you know, women weren't that valuable in that culture and children weren't that important, so they only would have counted the men. And that sounds nice to hear, but when do you actually need to count the men that are with you? When you're getting ready to go to war. When you're ready to go into battle, right? All throughout the Old Testament, I can see time and time again that they counted the number of men because they wanted to see what kind of force they would have. So when it says they counted 5,000 men and then 4,000 men that got fed at those feedings, those were dudes that were there ready to fight and lay down their life if they had to to try to get Roman, the Roman Empire out of their land. And they wanted to take it by force. They show up and say, Jesus, you're our king. Lead us in a battle. Let's do this. But then Jesus looks at him and says, you don't understand what I'm doing. My kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom that's built on love and peace, not violence and war. You see, this is, this is incredible, and we can't miss this moment. This is why the disciples go back fishing. This is why the disciples all deserted him, because they had some unmet expectation. You see, we've all experienced pain in our life. Sometimes where we go through things, and it's nothing that we ever would have wanted to happen. You know, I know, I know for my wife and I, we actually lost our first two kids to miscarriage. Something we never would have thought would have happened. My dad, he actually went out hunting one day, climbed up 30 feet into a tree. The band broke on his tree stand. He fell, shattered his spine. They pulled out over 90 pieces of bone fragment. Every single day for the last 18 years, he's lived in pain. You think that's something that he expected to experience? My mom and dad... They actually wanted to have another kid, and so they get pregnant, and in their late 30s, they end up having Daniel, who's the joy of our family, but he was born with Down syndrome. Do you think that they expected that to happen? What I'm saying is we go through things that some of us, we don't like. It's painful, but Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, so we can't live life not expecting for bad things to happen. See, another reason why we don't experience joy living life in this kingdom isn't just because of unmet expectation, but it's also because some of us are walking around holding on to forgiveness or unforgiveness. Excuse me, unforgiveness. Right? When Christianity, the entire message of Jesus is built around love and forgiveness. But for so many of us, People have done something to us, right? We can go back to that unmet expectation. They've done something to us, and now we carry around that hurt and that pain, and we hold on to it, and we fail to forgive. And when we fail to forgive, we think when we hold on to it, we're hurting the other person, but really we're just hurting ourselves. We're locking ourselves up in a prison. Matter of fact, what I find so interesting, speaking of Easter, as soon as Jesus gets up out of the grave, he actually goes and he meets with his disciples. They're hanging out in an upper room. They're freaking out. They're scared, rightly so. Here was the dude that was their king to establish the kingdom. Now he's dead. What are we going to do? Even though he told them three different times, Mark 8, 31, 9, 31, Mark 10, 32, that, man, okay, I must be turned over into the hands of the Romans. They're going to beat me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die, but don't worry. I'm going to rise again in three days. But they didn't perceive it. They didn't understand it. And here they were locked up in an upper room, and Jesus just walks in through the door. He doesn't open the door, he walks through the door. 
So I can imagine there's a little panic in this moment. And Jesus says this. He says, peace be with you. And they're in a moment they need some peace. Maybe that's where you walked in this morning. You need some peace in your life. Then the second thing he says, he says, again, peace be with you. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes on them. Which is really cool if you think about it. And I don't have time to unpack it. But if you go back to the very beginning, right? God, he created humanity by forming the dust of the earth. And then to Adam, he breathed his breath into him. And then now here we are, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he gets up and he actually breathes life into his disciples, kind of like saying, I'm restarting humanity in this moment. And we can understand all of that. We can understand, okay, peace be with you. We can understand, okay, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I can get that. But then the third thing that he says, John 20, verse 23, is something that doesn't seem to fit when you first look at it. Matter of fact, I looked at it this week and I'm like, why would he say this? The first moment of teaching after Jesus' resurrection, he says this in John 20, 23. He says, if you forgive anyone of their sins, their sins will be forgiven. If you do not forgive, they are not forgiven. And I'm thinking, what? Jesus, here... That's what you're going to lead off with to teach your disciples in this moment? The first thing after you have risen, you're going to say, if you forgive anyone their sins, they will be forgiven. If you do not forgive, they will not be forgiven. Why is that? And then I began to kind of dissect this verse, and it's very interesting if you look it up. Matter of fact, I had to look it up in the original language, and the word forgive in the first sentence is different than the word forgive in the second sentence. See, the word in the second sentence is actually the word to hold or to retain. So it should read like this. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins will be forgiven. If you hold them, they will be held. You see, in this moment, Jesus is saying, right, you need to forgive, you have to forgive, because I don't think, right, because Jesus taught you got to forgive as I have forgiven you. There is no place in the kingdom of God for us not to forgive. So Jesus wouldn't say, if you don't forgive, right, they won't be forgiven. He wouldn't say that. You tracking what I'm saying right now? So he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. Basically, you could release it, or if you try to forgive and then hold on to it, you're only hurting yourself. You will not be able to experience the joy that I have come to bring in establishing my kingdom if you continue to hold on to the hurts that other people afflict on you. Even to hold unforgiveness to the people that actually just crucified Jesus. Those were the very people that Peter was going to have to get up and preach before in like 50 days after this moment. See, you can't harbor unforgiveness. But unmet expectation, unforgiveness, there are things that we go through in this life, things that happen to us, but we have to recognize, we have to understand how it is we need to respond to those things. And that we have access to joy in spite of our circumstances. Matter of fact, I told you a little bit about what our family's been through, but I want to share with you one more thing. Matter of fact, I want you to hear from my sister Ashera in what she experienced, because my sister Ashera is one of the most joy-filled people that I know. But when you hear her story, and if you know her story, you're going to be like, how can you have joy after what you went through, but I'm telling you, she can because of Jesus. And I want you to hear from her story this morning. And so our team, our creative team, captured her testimony on video. And it's powerful, and it's moving, 
and it's amazing. So lean in, check out the screens, and be encouraged this Easter Sunday. Now I don't say my childhood was really normal, but it was for sure very special. As a child, when fight and flight wasn't my instinct, I froze. I just slowly began to shove that little girl so far down inside of me that it would take a miracle to ever find her and bring her the healing that she needed. Growing up for me was normal, or at least, you know, what I considered to be normal. Um, I just remember being very happy. Um, really never had to question um, my security, my love that my parents had for me. Um, just a, really just a very free child. And um, grew up in a pastor's home and um, accepted Christ at a very early age. But something shifted. There was a change around the age of 12 or 13. So the Jesus that I fell in love with um, became a Jesus plus rules, a Jesus plus do's and don'ts and a Jesus plus you need to act a certain way and um, it all of a sudden just became an unrealistic expectation put on me that I couldn't obtain or ever achieve so I slowly just began to walk away and um, went down a long path of um, just choosing and making bad choices and all of that eventually led me to a night that would forever change my life. When I was 13 years old, I naively snuck out of my house and um, Innocently and ever since of the word, um, got into a car with two grown men and had the idea that we were going to a party. Um, never made it to the party that night and was dropped off a few hours later. Like a piece of trash that had just that had just been raped. As a 13-year-old child, when fight and flight wasn't my instinct, I froze. And it was very hard for me to put into words um, what had just taken place, and it was very hard for me to articulate that event. Um, I just slowly began to shove that story and shove that little girl so far down inside of me that it would take a miracle to ever find her and bring her. 
the healing that she needed. I eventually got through um, high school. Um, right out of high school, I married um, an alcoholic, verbally abusive man. At times, would turn physical. Um, I was got married because I was pregnant. Uh, my heart sank when the nurse said, "I'll be back. I need to go." at the doctor because I knew that something wasn't right and that was confirmed when she said I don't see I don't see a heartbeat I felt like my whole world had ended and I went back two days later and gave birth to a lifeless baby and just remember holding him and just tears streaming down my face thinking when you don't love yourself and you're married to someone who doesn't love you um, only because they really don't know how and your heart is so closed off to ever receiving God's love. I walk around daily, I feel like, with a hole still in my heart and my arms always yearn to hold my son and the hope though is in Christ I'll see him again eventually that marriage would end um, I couldn't give one more ounce I didn't have it to give to that marriage and I was drained emotionally and mentally from that marriage but the ending of that season of my life would be this beautiful beginning of a healing journey where God just began to put my heart back together one broken piece at a time. When you believe lies for so long, they eventually become true to you. God took me by the hand and together he walked with me down that long, painful road to find that little girl and to bring her the healing that she needed. And along with that, he was able to show me where he was, and that was right by my side every step of the way, not just in the high moments of my life, but also in the hopelessness and in the tragedy and the heartache. He was right there with me through our stories. Um, are redeemed for a purpose and I know a lot of people like to um, have that fairy tale perfect story and I think a lot of people think that they need that in the church but the reality is is that no one has that fairy tale story to tell but they can all have a fairy tale ending in Christ one that is encapped with peace and joy and freedom and that's what I have now because my story no longer serves shame and now serves a purpose. This is my sister, Ashera, and uh, this is a sister in whom I'm well pleased as her big brother. And I'd actually ask her to join me on this Easter Sunday to actually encourage you because each and every single one of you has a story. And that story, as you heard in that video, sometimes is filled with a little pain and a little heartache 
See, in this world, we do have trouble. But I didn't finish that statement because Jesus goes on to say, but fear not, for I've overcome the world. And so I've asked Ashera just to share with you just very briefly on how you can have joy even through your struggle right in the middle of your story. experience true joy comes down to perspective and really even deeper than that it's an awakening just as we have looked at throughout this series that we are already righteous that we already have peace and I think the same is true with joy we have to awaken to that reality that right now in Christ we have righteousness peace and joy But so often we take our focus off of Jesus and we put it on our circumstances. We put it on our past, or maybe for you, you put it on your story. And there's no doubt that a lot of you may have a similar story, maybe even a messier story. And I hear often, I've been through hell and back I've been through hell and back, and maybe you can relate to that because you've been through hell. Maybe you are in the middle of a hell right now, and I truly believe in hell on earth. I know because I lived it. But what people misunderstand, and they kind of mess that up, I've been through hell and back. That and back is a healing process. It's a healing journey back to your true identity in Christ. And it's hard and it is painful and it requires forgiveness and that forgiveness is the key to really unlocking that joy in your life so God is saying to come back to look again because I am right by your side I love you I have say in that moment to look again. See, what are you looking at? If you're looking at your circumstances and what you're going through, I believe Jesus would say, look again. Look to me. You're going through something that is very painful and it's very, you know, full of discomfort. Look, that's okay because Jesus did come and he did release the Holy Spirit on the world and the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. We wouldn't need a comforter unless we go through things that are uncomfortable. See, I told you I wanted to shift up this Easter. This isn't your typical Easter message, but I think it is real and I think it's authentic and I think it's genuine. And if you could lean into what it is we're trying to express and to show to you today, I promise you, you could begin to experience freedom in your life like never before. But it takes you looking again. See, not walking around trying to get right with God based on what you do, Because there'll be days, oh, I'm great today, but there'll be days, man, I'm really messed up. And you feel like, man, I'm, you know, falling in and out of grace with God. But that does not happen 
we don't fall in and out of grace with God because grace also isn't just this concept. Grace is Jesus, and he's alive in us and with us at all times. So we have and we are full of grace. And look again. Look at what system you're operating in. Right, a life lived following after Jesus isn't about, about everything that you do. It's looking again at everything he did. It's finished on the cross. He finished it. He finished the work that God called him to do. And now the only work that's required of us is simply to believe. This is the work that God requires, to believe in the one that he sent. And the one he sent was his son, Jesus.